Hello, queens and beans! Welcome to the Wild Honey Collective, a podcast for cultural worker bees, where we learn how to pollinate ideas about living in integrity with our self, health, and all natural wealth, and alchemize those ideas into coordinated, artful action. This episode is all about the inspiration for this show, the honeybees. You may not know this about me, but I'm really fascinated by bees. Bees have an ancient history of symbolizing divinity and mortality to humans across cultures and eras. And even before studying this honeybee mythology, I could understand this reverence that we see from humans all over the world. If we're paying attention, we must naturally pay tribute to these high priestesses of the wild. These messengers between the worlds share a powerful lineage of crafting communication from the ethereal realm to the material, through the language of energy, or so folklore tells us. Bees alchemize nectar into a more concentrated distillation, honey, and share this potent medicine of the flower world with the next generation of their hive, and with us. Honey is not just a stunningly beautiful and delicious taste, but strongly medicinal. In this episode, I'm going to trace the linkages between the mechanisms of bee society and our own, starting briefly with the ancient myths about bees and moving gradually through to the science of the sophisticated systems of communication, adaptation, and craft that allow them to pollinate vibrant blooming in our world, and what we can learn from them about our own deep desire to do the same. Take this episode in bite-sized pieces if you need to. There's a lot to say. Let's begin by showing our respect to the ancients and exploring some ancient mythology around bees in very broad strokes. Several deities are associated with bees and honey, Aphrodite, Vishnu, Pan, Sibyl, and Ra, just to name a few. In ancient Egypt, honey was widely used by all classes, indicating a mass culture of beekeeping. For at least 4,500 years, the Egyptians have been moving clay hives up and down the Nile to facilitate pollination and the making of honey. This practice continues to the present day. In one Egyptian legend from the Salt Magical Papyrus, it is written that bees are created from the sun god Ra, creator of the earth and sea. One book of rituals notes ancient Egyptians believed the voices of souls sounded like the hum of bees. So bees were significant in all parts of Egyptian life. The ancient Celts of the Iron Age also believed that bees were messengers between the worlds of the living and the dead. Bees were respected for their abilities, so much so, there were even legal documents created with the express purpose of protecting any bee-related practices. The Brech Betha was a set of laws protecting beekeepers and beehives, and stealing a hive was considered a capital offense, so don't try it, honey. 
In some areas of New England and Appalachia, it was believed that when so- once someone died, it was important for the family to go tell the bees of the death. Whoever kept the bees for the family would make sure the bees got the news so that they could spread it around. And so this tradition of telling the bees is a superstitious thing that we find in different places in Old England as well. You may have heard of it. Like all non-human animals, observing the way the bees find nourishment for their raw and natural surroundings reveals a world of possibility for how human life on Earth could be restored within living relationships. The earth provides everything that we need to live a good life. We know this is possible thanks to the crafts of working with natural materials that our ancestors honed over millennia. We know it because traditional skill keepers around the world, and especially indigenous communities, have continued to uphold an ethic of stewarding this way of life, even at great personal and cultural risk of violent repression. And we also know it we also know it through observations of our more than human family. Holding up creatures as teachers is a paradigm shift that can open up possibilities for our ways of life that have been so thoroughly erased by colonization that my own generation can barely imagine them. The bees in particular represent to me a reimagination of our transformative and healing powers as caretakers in a alive and conscious world. And disclaimer, there is so much to learn about this topic, and I'm right with any of you who are new to the magical and wonderful world of social insects. So let's keep uncovering the mysteries together, and please share any nuggets of truth that you can add to this conversation dive into the hive, I'm going to focus on three parts of the honeybee society and see how far we get. One, the three primary roles in the hive and how each type of bee plays their part in sustaining the collective. Two, some different approaches that humans have taken to interacting with bees in agriculture. And three, some of the ripple effects of those approaches, including colony collapse disorder, bee die-offs, and how looking to our own approach to feeding ourselves can potentially restore a healthy balance in our agroecology and hashtag save the bees. But because I'm me, you're going to get this all through the lens of a little bit of mysticism, eco-socialism, and wisdom about war, peace, and folk medicine. Now, who would we be to leave these out? You can get the science somewhere else, but I'll be doing my best to do that as well. So, a little bit about these these bees that we are so enraptured and fascinated with. First of all, how do their societies work? So, bees are a keystone species. This means that they're indicators of their environment's health. And they're cautionary storytellers about taking too much. We see that in these mass die-offs that are happening in our domesticated and wild bee populations, a lot of it is caused by 
both the chemical inputs that humans use for agriculture, unfortunately, and also because humans are trying to take too much of the honey that the bees share with us and also need to survive on their own. So how do they do this? Bees are social insects, and as social insects, they require complex communication systems to coordinate life living in collective. There are over 20,000 bee species worldwide, and wild bee species live on every continent except Antarctica. In North America, there are approximately 4,000 native bee species occupying ecosystems from forests to deserts to grasslands, and none of them are the classic honeybee that we know and love and that we're going to be talking about for the most part today. The honeybee is not actually native to North America, it's from Eurasia and it's been domesticated and imported across the world. So for our native bees, many of them are also not even social bees, meaning they do not live in hives, but solitary nests. So for the purposes of this conversation, it's interesting to look at the honeybees who originated in Eurasia and who live in hives. There are about seven social insects that we find in North America, social bee species that we find in North America. And we'll be looking at their social dynamics because that's really where we find the miraculous, sophisticated communication systems that's interesting to talk about, in my opinion. So so honeybee colonies are up to 60,000 workers who are all of the female interdependent leads who do all of the work to maintain the hive. They cannot reproduce and have babies. There is only one reproductive female in the hive, and that is the queen. And depending on the colony population and season of the year, there can also be up to a couple hundred male bees who are called drones, and their only purpose is to keep the the eggs moving from the queen. They mate with the queen, and then they die. So... The hive is made up of a population denser than Harrisonburg by about 10,000 in some cases, and they must find a way to operate as a functional whole dedicated to the common cause of harvesting, building, maintaining, and serving everything they need for collective survival. So, really interesting, the hive is made up of female bees and they have two possible directions in life they can from the time that they're eggs they can either develop into queens or workers via alternative via alternative developmental processes known as caste differentiation to put it in the words of australian epigenetic scientist dr rizard maleska Bees have come up with the evolutionary invention of creating two contrasting organisms from the same genetic hardware. And those would be long-lived reproductive queens and short-lived workers who cannot reproduce. 
At their peak, queens can produce up to 1,500 eggs per day, and one queen may produce up to 250,000 eggs per year and possibly more than a million in her lifetime, which is about two to five years. After mating, the queen returns to the hive and begins laying eggs in about 48 hours. She releases several sperm from the spermethica each time she lays an egg, destined to become either a worker or a queen. If her egg is laid in a larger drone sized cell in the honeycomb, she does not release sperm. So all male bees are actually hatched from unfertilized eggs. The queen is constantly attended and fed royal jelly by the colony's worker bees. The number of eggs the queen lays depends on the amount of food she receives and the size of the worker force capable of preparing beeswax cells for her eggs and caring for the larvae that will hatch from the eggs in three days. So everything in the bee world moves super fast. Um, the eggs are laid in three days, they're hatched. I don't honestly even understand how unfertilized eggs become a creature. Um, so I couldn't really find a good explanation of that. So please help me out there. I don't get it. But that's apparently how it works. So the queen does her queen thing until her hormones that she secretes to the hive, telling everybody, hey, I'm here, I'm the queen. When that is no longer adequate because she's declining, or something is, you know, shifting in the hive, then the workers get to work starting to lay new queen eggs to replace her. So based on this change in scent and pheromones that the queen gives off that says, I'm starting to no longer queen, I am going to retire, then the workers, a few of the workers actually have the ability to develop their ovaries on command and start laying eggs so that they can raise up a new queen. How incredible is that? Workers in their bodies, they have special structures such as brood, food glands, scent glands, wax glands, pollen baskets, that's really cute, which allow them to perform all the labors of the hive. So every job that is needed, it is taken care of by a worker bee lady. They clean and polish the cells, they feed the brood, care for the queen, remove debris, handle incoming nectar. Oh my God, I can't wait until we talk about that. And build beeswax combs. They guard the entrance against other bees. They're not taking any trouble. They run a tight ship. And they air condition and ventilate the hive. Keep it fresh. Later, as field bees, they are the ones that forage for nectar, pollen, water, and plant sap. So the workers need two kinds of food, honey and pollen. Honey is the distillation of nectar, the sugary juice of the heart of a flower, and pollen is the small grains from within the anthers of flowers that carry the male reproductive cell that helps fertilize plants. And so when we say that bees are pollinators, 
what we're saying is that bees help fertilize plants via pollen just by going out to eat. They just get covered in it and then they go to the next flower and some of it falls off and boom, you have plant babies. Queen bees are fed an exclusive diet of royal jelly throughout their lives. Royal jelly or bee milk is a white watery jelly secreted from a special gland in the heads of worker bees that is somewhat mysteriously involved in the sexual development of the queen. So she's the only one that eats this stuff and it is what actually differentiates the queen from the workers in their bodies. Queen bees, like I said, can live up to two to five years and workers Four to six weeks in the summer, it's a short ride, but they're, they're here to do the work. In the winter, they can live a little bit longer, five to six months. Drones, or the male bees, are just there to mate with the queen and die immediately after. We are a zero-waste society here in bee world. And as a quick aside, there is no greater expression of male plight in this world than the drone bee who, living in a two-tiered caste system where both options are being female, he's at the bottom. The bottom of the bottom. He has no role in collecting food, feeding the young, building the hive, producing wax, none of that. He's just there to make sure the next generation of strong women rises up, and then as soon as he makes his contribution, he dies, or the hive kicks him out before that happens if he takes too long. So this is not an ad for ecofeminism. Anyway, honeybees are pollinators. You probably know that. And they pollinate more than one-third of the world's crops and are vital to the food supply. A honeybee can typically visit between 50 to 1,000 flowers in one trip, which can take as little as 30 minutes or as many as four hours. A colony with 25,000 forager bees, each making 10 trips a day, is able to pollinate 250 million flowers. As a bee enters a flower to feed on nectar and gather pollen, some of the pollen sticks to the bee's body. When the bee flies on, it's deposited some of that pollen on the next flower it visits, resulting in fertilization, allowing the plant to reproduce and to generate the fruits and seeds so many other wildlife species rely on as a food. Isn't that cool? In fact, bees pollinate a staggering 80% of all flowering plants, including approximately 75% of the fruits, nuts, and vegetables grown in the United States. So just by being themselves and meeting their needs, honeybees and all pollinators provide the life-giving service of pollination that allows humans and countless others to eat. Perhaps there is a lesson in this. What service can you provide yourself that inherently simultaneously serves others? How can you pollinate greater nourishment and access to life-giving resources just by being yourself? Agriculture could be a shining example of this natural gift-giving if our agricultural systems were not built on the inherently selfish and harmful modes of monoculture, chemical input, heavy industrial machinery, and a total lack of interest 
in the nature of relationships that is nature. But what other examples can you think of? Is there a way that you can give with a fluidity that mirrors the magic of the bees? So I want to talk now about how bees make honey. Because before researching this episode, I'm not going to lie to you, I did not know. You just see their little antennas moving in the honeycombs and you see their little feet and hands like digging into these pools of flower nectar and you're just like how do these women make this magic what are they doing how are they not just in like off with the gods like drinking ambrosia languishing in the sun up on mount olympus like they're just living life and working really hard Because, you know, they only have six weeks to live, so they got to do what they got to do. So as the worker bee forages, she sucks the nectar from the flower using a special nectar-sucking tube that comes out of her face. And it's stored in her honey stomach that is a special nectar sack ready to be transferred to the honey-making bees when she gets back to the hive. If she's hungry, she opens a valve in her nectar sac, and a portion of the harvest passes through her own stomach to be converted to energy for her work. She's just like, oh, no problem. I'll just take a little bit here, open that compartment, and she's good to go. She can carry close to her body weight, in the nectar and pollen while in flight. Even the most advanced design in aircraft, let me tell you, can only take off carrying one quarter of its own weight. So this is all natural, all female, raw power. She's out there flying with her body weight in flower power. Once the scout has collected her body weight in nectar, she will fly back to the hive and bestow her treasures on the high priestesses engaged in the transformation process of their craft. They will then pass the nectar to each other mouth to mouth in an epic queer makeout session that reduces the moisture content of the nectar until it's about 20%, essentially distilling the nectar into honey. The honey is stored in the cells of the hexagonal honeycomb that makes up the hive where it will feed the next generation. Baby bees are then fed a blend of honey and pollen, depending on who they are, or they end up getting the royal jelly if they're queens like that. So workers will be fed a mixture of fermented pollen that we call bee bread, and they mix in the honey, so it's a protein-rich diet. And then the queens are fed their exclusive diet of royal jelly which we call bee milk and as i said before it's a secretion from special glands in the nurse bees which is a type of worker that distinguish the queen in her ability to develop to sexual maturity so human use of honey is traced to some 8000 years back as depicted by stone age paintings 
In addition to the important role of natural honey in traditional medicine, during the past few decades, its medicinal benefits have been studied in clinical trials and has also found a place in modern medicine. So to tell you a little bit about how this magic is magic, honey contains about 20 different compounds that are full of amino acids, vitamins, minerals, and enzymes. Honey is antifungal, antiviral, and antibacterial, meaning that it's effective in resisting different varieties of fungus, virus, and bacteria, about 60 different species of bacteria, including salmonella and all these nasty things. Um, Honey can be used topically to uh, heal wounds and, you know, as an antibacterial, and it also performs those functions in the body. It has a strong antioxidant effect due to a wide range of compounds including, I'm going to say some science words for my science friends, phenolics, peptides, flavonoids, organic acids, enzymes, and Maillard reaction products. And so the antioxidants help clean up free radicals in the body that destroy cell tissue, and that means great benefits for your brain, immune system, cardiovascular, and endocrine systems. It also has anti-inflammatory effects and anti-cancerous effects, and in Ayurvedic medicine, the ancient Indian science slash philosophy of life knowledge, honey is beneficial for strengthening weak digestion, also providing for healthy teeth and gums, balancing anemia, soothing irritating skin, and respiratory conditions, and alleviating insomnia. So it's really good in so many ways. The ancient Egyptians used honey for almost everything, offering sacrifices to the god, embalming the dead, including beeswax they used for that, plus everyday remedies for wounds and other topical ailments. Honey was almost always paired with wine and milk when made for medicine. So this stuff is really powerful. These bees are really powerful. And at this point, 30 minutes in, we have scratched the surface of how honey communicates with our bodies. And now let's dip our toe into how bees communicate with each other. So this is my favorite part. I I like the honey medicine, but this is my favorite part. Bees communicate through smell, sound, and movement. They share information through the release of pheromones, which are odor cues signifying important messages about food sources, hive productivity, etc. Each pheromone has a different meaning, whether that be alerting each other to danger, communicating what jobs are being done, or sensing the presence of the queen. Hello, I'm the queen. Why don't you smell me? And that's always a good indicator of what needs to happen in the hive. So it's an effective way as their bodies are working, as they are around each other, they're constantly sending out cues through scent about what is happening and what needs to happen and who's doing what. If the queen begins to decline, her scent will change and the workers will switch their focus from whatever job they were doing to raising a new queen to take her place. 
The other way that they communicate is through dance. The waggle dance, the epic waggle dance, is the performance that inspired this podcast. The waggle dance is an embodied form of communication that the bees use to tell each other where to find the most productive flowers. This fascinating language involves a series of movements in a figure-eight shape and traversing that shape at precise angles that communicate the location of the flowers that they need to find with incredible accuracy. So the bee will move her body on the honeycomb with her fellow bees watching and she will move in a figure eight shape while waggling her butt and the path of her waggling cyclical movements draw out the root of where they'll find the flowers in relation to the sun and gravity mapping an embodied path to abundance the bee will waggle her bottom as she moves indicating how far the distance to her flower patch is. She can describe roots up to four miles away. So the more times that she's waggling her tail, the farther away the destination is. This is essentially a purposeful form of shaking your ass that charts the way to community-scale nourishment and helps your 60,000 cousins put food on the table. This is a noble and skilled craft. Not to mention, we owe our own nourishment to this seamless wayfinding. Okay, but I'm linking live film on this natural wonder on my website so you can see it for yourself, as explained by the late, great David Attenborough. Truthfully, this embodied, remarkable communication art form is not even the most compelling part about the waggle dance, although for me, it's completely amazing. I'm even more amazed, though, at the way we as humans in a Western scientific tradition have found the language to study this behavior. (laughs) So often, the empirical convention of Western science makes little room to see the value of creative expression and beauty in the endeavor to explain and understand our world. As Robin Wall Kimmerer says, One of the difficulties in the scientific world is that when we name something, often with a scientific name, this name becomes almost an end to inquiry. We say, well, we know it now. We're able to systematize it and put a Latin binomial on it, so it's ours. We know the organism. We know what we need to know. But that is, of course, only looking at the morphology of the organism at the way that it looks. It ignores all of its relationships. It's such a mechanical, wooden representation of what an organism really is, and we reduce them tremendously if we just think about them as physical elements in the ecosystem." So I think it's extraordinary that in studying and unlocking the system of communication, Austrian scientist Karl von Frisch named the most astounding example of non-primate communication that we know the extraordinarily silly name of the Waggle Dance. That is, ever since learning about this, 
I have been completely blown away by the silliness and unbelievable genius of this process. Our own language for describing their expression points to the rich history of reverence that we humans have for these alchemists of the flower world. We see their acts of cooperative, innovative communication as more than just speech, it's dance. It's creative. It's their discovery of a pathway beyond the limitations of their bodies that allows them to express with the kind of precision that sound can't capture. What would happen if we dared to venture beyond the borders of our own language and found more invitational ways to use our bodies to show each other the pathways to nourishment that we've discovered? Around the world, bees have been dying off in droves since the mid-1990s. Colonies have been collapsing mysteriously, and adult bees have been disappearing and abandoning their hives. Colony collapse is attributed to a variety of factors, including pathogens, loss of habitat, and increased exposure to systematic and other pesticides. Current regulations don't provide adequate protection for bees. One factor is that is often downplayed is the overexploitation of bees in agriculture. As both the appetites of consumers and industrial agriculture's hunger to meet it at any cost have created an ethic of unlimited extraction Large-scale beekeepers have tried to shortcut their way to larger yields by taking their bees' honey away from them and substituting their diets with sugar extract, which has made them more vulnerable to the onslaught of pesticide poisoning and weaker immunity from habitat loss. Both domesticated honeybees and many native bee species are in decline. In fact, some species, such as the once common rusty-patched bumblebee, are now listed as endangered in the U.S. Meanwhile, beekeepers are seeing 90% of their colonies lost every year in some areas. Potential causes of these declines include habitat destruction, disease, agricultural and lawn and garden pesticides, habitat fragmentation, changes in land use, invasive species, and climate change. While we're working to address each of these problems, the three things we can do right now to save the bees are to plant more pollinator-friendly plants, stop the use of bee-killing pesticides in parks, wildlife refuges, and other places bees should be safe, and promote sustainable, less pesticide-reliant agricultural practices. Major retailers such as Lowe's, The Home Depot, Walmart, Ace Hardware, and many others have made commitments to move the market away from selling bee-killing neonicotinoid pesticides, aka neonics, or glyphosate. Environment America is one group calling on the online giant Amazon to follow this solidarity and do the same. You can sign their petition through the link in my show notes. The states of Connecticut, Maryland, and Vermont have already banned the sale of bee-killing pesticides to consumers, 
and Environment America is calling on the country to do the same. I could do a whole episode on this topic by itself, so for now I'll leave it there. But if you want to learn more, an easy way to start is by checking out a documentary called Vanishing of the Bees, which helped spread public awareness about this issue in 2009. I also saw a really wonderful documentary last weekend called Honeyland, which is on Hulu, I believe, and it follows the story of a Macedonian beekeeper who keeps wild bees in the traditional way, um, which is really interesting because the movie is a beautifully done story about the cautionary tales of taking too much and what happens when we don't leave enough for the bees to subsist on in their own like internal needs and we take all of their honey and then some of the reflections of that in our larger culture ready to listen there's a lot we can learn about our own collective relationships and how to live them in a healthier way from what the bees are saying and how they're saying it bringing it back to robin wall kimmerer she says that attention is that doorway to gratitude the doorway to wonder and to reciprocity So let's pay our share of attention to the small creatures whose enormous contributions to our well-being too often go unnoticed, invisibilized, to the point where our food systems are wreaking catastrophic havoc on our pollinators and hardly anyone notices. The irony that we can't eat without them is too quickly lost on us. And for their own sake, they deserve better. I believe understanding is another word for love. And though we're too quick to cheapen it like so many other sources of real power in our world, I still deeply believe in it, and I believe in your power to step into it. So as we only just begin to turn toward the sun following the winter solstice, think about planting a pollinator garden. Imagine the most beautiful nectar that you would like some honeybees somewhere to transform. Spread medicine just like they do. Buy local honey and meet the person who helps harvest it. Continue learning about the effects of chemical agriculture. You will if you keep following this podcast. And do not let anyone use Roundup or any other chemical cocktail that is used for pesticide and herbicide use. If you can. As always, thank you for listening. Your time and attention are not small things. They call it paying attention for a reason. Listening is a recognized currency here at the Wild Honey Collective. So if you appreciate this work, the simplest and easiest way to support it is following on whatever platform you're listening, sharing it with your friends, and following us on Instagram at thewildhoney.collective. If you take five seconds to follow wherever you are finding this work, it will help us be seen by more people and connect with fellow cultural worker bees. So thank you for your support. You can always add your own voice to the conversation by messaging me on Instagram with your reflections and questions 
or fill out the question form at wildhoneycollective.org. New episodes will come out every Friday through February. The second half of season one will continue to get us into exploring the world of the wild honeybees and how we can learn from their wild ways of being to craft medicine, be with, and commit to wildlife. Last but not least, you can support the podcast on Patreon by becoming a monthly subscriber, which comes with added benefits, including your own fancy Wild Honey Collective merch. The culture out in the world and help us pollinate ideas for greater collective health. And for all you wild honeys out there, keep creating.